Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast. This is episode 10. My name is Matt Wood, and I recently sat down with Randy Caparoso, sommelier, writer, author, and Lodi Wine Authority at his house in Lodi. We had a casual and wide-ranging discussion on his career, changes he's seen in the wine industry since starting as a sommelier, the wine list at Roy's, consumer preferences, and lots of great info about Lodi, including discussions of Zinfandel, Carignan, the Lodi Native Project, and much more. This is going to be part one of a two-parter. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. So Lodi is a great place for, you know, these kind of startup wineries mm-hmm. because uh, they can afford it. Kind of a, a dichotomy, I guess you could describe it. So if you were to come to you know, went to Napa or Sonoma County in the 1960s or 70s, what you would find is just a bunch of grape growers mm-hmm. kind of like here. Yeah. And then a few wineries, mm-hmm. not a lot of wineries, just a, a few wineries. Uh, what I mean by that is less than 40. I mean, very few wineries. And, and people who did grow grapes were, they grew grapes just like they do here. They're more like farmers. Mm-hmm. The wineries that took most of those grapes were like Ian J. Gallo. You know, they bought probably up until the 70s, you know, at least 60% of all the fruit grown in Sonoma County. Okay. At least 50% grown in Napa. In Napa, you know, the rest of it went to larger wineries. Like the larger wineries at that time were Charles Krug, Inglenook, mm-hmm. um, Behringer. You know, and they made six, seven, eight dollar wine. Then they would make some reserves, which they would sell at a really high price of like twelve bucks. You know, like a Bolu private reserve that would be twelve bucks, but Bolu regular Cabernet would be seven or eight. And and so that's what it was like then. But now. You probably know, you know, Napa Valley is, it became the place where people wanted to, you know, get into it and produce expensive Cabernet. And now Cabernet is closer to, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a ton. So, so Lodi here is a place where, yes, you can buy Cabernet the way it used to be in Sonoma and Napa. And... Now, of course, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's about 1,200 a ton. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it used to, just a few years ago, it was just 900. So, um, Zinfandel isn't very much more than that. And even considering the fact that most of the Zinfandel in Lodi is over 50 years old. You know, in other words, planet 1970s or before. Yeah. Uh, And that's a lot of old vine. Yeah. And I'm talking about... Uh, a good eight nine thousand acres. Like, like driving around here, I feel like yeah. Old, yeah. old vines are the majority of what you what you see. That's what you see because you're driving through the old part of of the region. You know, if you drive out to the the surrounding areas, those those are the vineyards that uh, were planted more in the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, and that's actually more like 60% now of what's coming out of Lodi. And so those are 
all on trellis and the younger vines and lots of grape varieties and all that. But yeah, surrounding the city is mostly, yeah, this is where they first planted. That's where you find most of the old vineyards. And so that's why I moved here. It was I first came here in 2002. I came here and, uh, you know, I work in res restaurants and traveled all over the world because, you know, I had a, happened to be a multi-unit uh, partner. And so I could do that. And so I was had the luxury of looking all over the world for wines that went with our cuisine, which is kind of Asian French. And uh, so I used to go to France and Italy and Germany every year, uh, looking for the wines to go with it, uh, the type of cuisines that we were cooking. And so uh, when I came here, I, it struck me as being really like Southwest France, you know, mm -hmm. the, the climate, yeah, the soils, and lots of old vineyards. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what you can still find in in, uh, in France, you know, um, uh, vineyards of a certain age. Uh, maybe not all of them are 100 years old, but a lot of them are at least 40 or 50. And, uh, and when I looked at it, I said, wow. And, and so even though in 2002, Lodi had no reputation. I mean, you could barely find a bottle that said Lodi on it at that time. Uh, because you know, why would you put Lodi on it? Because nobody would recognize that. <laughs> so you just put California. Um, and, um, but in my mind, it was, you know, this place is not well known, but look at these vineyards. And then, then of course, I tasted wine from these vineyards and was like, oh my God, these are so good. So it's it's really that simple. You know, for me, it was just a matter of, you know, being in the environment and seeing the soil, seeing, feeling the climate and coming back and you know, back and forth and looking at it at different times of year and then getting a wine like this. So, I mean, this wine, when you smell it, it's just amazing. It's just like, okay, it's sense soaked. I mean, Sensol is not Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir, but it's so fragrant and so mm -hmm. spicy. I mean, it smells like all the kitchen spices you use, you know, uh, you know, clove, cinnamon, cardamom, and it has a little bit of pepper and it smells like, you know, cherries and raspberries. And then and then there's a little earthiness to it. And some of the Zinfandels that I tasted during my first few visits, really struck me they they had this pervasive sort of tour to them now tour is not the same as earthy i'm just saying in this case the tour that you can smell in the wines were an earthy type of tour like compost mm -hmm. you know or you know or dirt basically or you know or mushrooms or things like that this wine has all of that it's it's ridiculous, yeah. And, and, uh, Real complex. Uh, and then when you taste it, it's nice and soft, and and but it has a great acid, and that's all natural acid because it's McKay. He didn't do anything to this wine. He doesn't acidify it. He doesn't do anything. This this is what you taste. It's what you get. You know, that's why he doesn't have the greatest color because yeah, he's not concerned about color. So in 2002, this vineyard was unknown. They were packing up all the grapes in little 36-pound uh, uh, boxes, 
with boxes. The box itself weighed four pounds, so so it would be exactly 40 pounds with 36 pounds of fruit in it. And, and then just shipped out to Canada or Midwest or or the Northeast, mm-hmm. just sold to home winemakers and for peanuts. So in, in this case, it, the, you probably heard that the vineyard, they didn't even know they were growing Sanso. That's what I was going to ask. They, that was before they realized it was yeah, actually they, they thought, in that vineyard, yeah, right? They, it was always sold as black mwabasi. That's what it was planted as. And in fact, you can look at the old books with the listing of the grapes and it says black mwabasi. So people just didn't realize it was a synonym for a senso. And so that wasn't discovered till 2007. So, uh, no, 2004. Was that when Randall Graham started? Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Bogart, Kay Bogart, who worked with UC Davis, was consulting with the vineyard next door, Jesse Grove. And then she wanted to buy to Davis uh, cuttings from the plant to have it identified. It was identified as DNA. And Dr. Bogart did know Randall Graham. And so she called him and said, there's Sensel here. And I know you'd been advertising looking for Sensel. Because, you know, he's a Sensel. At the time, his most famous wine was Le Cigar Volant, you know, which is a Chateau de Pop uh, style wine. He's always had great Grenache and Mouvedra and Serrata put in it, but he's... He had, for years, he felt that the missing component was Senso. So he was the first customer. Okay. So he's, he, in the beginning, I, first three years, I believe he took all the fruit from all 25 acres of it. And so consequently, there was a, a lot more than he used. And so they ended up putting it, blending it into almost every wine made at Bonnie Doon, if oh. it was red, except the white wines. <laughs> um, and so I, I think... You know, when he, you know, he, when he'd get kind of tricky, he would call it, you know, Pinot Nero or something like that. Just some fanciful name. But then people like Turley, they started with that, and I think, believe in 2007. And then the local wineries started using it. And it must be what, 10 producers or so making uh, wines from that? At least a dozen. A dozen? Okay. Yeah. Because there, there are a lot of people that take tiny amounts. And people do come and go. I think for a long time, the Sholium Project was taking quite a bit, but you know, I'm not sure if they are now. But there are other ones that have, are taking some of it, like Ser, S-C-R. Oh, you know, uh, yeah. Nicole so, Walsh, right? She used right. to work at, uh, at Bond, or still does work she at Bond. She still Bondi works Dune. at Bond. Yeah. yeah. So that's her own brand. And so she inherited working with the fruit, you know, from... In the early 2000s, the winemaker was Jillian Johnson, you know, who has her own brand now, and she makes still makes sense all from there. It's a good story. Yeah, uh, it's good. Good wine too. Well, that that's the whole thing is good wine is good wine, no matter what it's called, no matter what the region is called. Good wine is good wine, and so our issue in the whole industry is people tend to. They tend to believe everything they're told. And uh, so they're told that if you really got really good wine, it has to be something called Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, you know, which is true. Those are fantastic grapes, make beautiful wine. But that's not all that makes beautiful wine. Mm-hmm. You go to Italy and 
you know, and all these different regions. And there's hundreds of grape varieties used for countless amazing wine. And it's like, what is this? Is it crap because it's not called Cabernet or Nebbiolo or Sangiovese? No, good wine is good wine. What is the name of this region? Oh, it comes from Ischia and it's made from Biancolella. It's like, we're taught that if it's from Ischia and it's called Biancolella, it can't be that good because you, you haven't heard of it. Uh, you don't read about it in the, even in the wine review magazines. It's like, no, that's total bullshit. You go over there and you taste it and it's amazing wine. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, you know, so people, they tend to rank things. So when you ask 95% of Americans where the American wine comes from, they'll say it comes from Napa Valley, which is kind of silly. Uh, Napa Valley is is a big producer, but most certainly Sonoma and Santa Barbara and Lake County and Mendocino have something to say about that. And so does Lodi, you know. And then there's the whole idea that if it's good wine, it has to taste a certain way. And so a Sonoma Chardonnay and a Napa Valley Cabernet are, are sort of like the standard bearers for those varieties. And so if you're making Cabernet, you know, from any other place, it has to taste as much as possible for those other wines, you know, in order to be considered good. And what's silly, of course, is, well, the whole idea is stupid to begin with. I mean, when we learn about wine, we learn, say, about French wine, and we learn about Bordeaux, and we learn, oh, there's five great Grand Cru, premier Grand Cru in Bordeaux, Latour, Lafitte, and there's uh, Margot and Aubryon. And then what you learn is each one is great, and each one has his own sort of character. And you can't say Aubryon is better than Lafitte, and Latour is better than, you know, uh, Petrus or whatever, you can't because they're different vineyards Mm -hmm. and they all make great wine. But here it's all about the brand and the varietal. And uh, and then worse yet, everyone is brainwashed, the entire industry as well as, uh, you know, consumers, you know, to accept numerical ratings and numerical ratings are based upon how rich is this Cabernet? How full-bodied is this Chardonnay? That's how they rate the wines. The richer, the fuller, the higher the score you get. And that's how wines are rated. It's silly. You know, so a wine like this would never get a high rating because it's light. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a lot of color. It doesn't smell like Cabernet or even Pinot Noir. It smells like Saint-Saëns. and so an idiot who writes magazines, this is not to say they're not nice people, but they might say, oh, wow, this is a good one. I, I would give it a 92, you know, which is saying that it would never be as good as a Pinot Noir or Cabernet, which can easily get a 95 or a 98 or a 99. It, as a sense, oh, this is this race 100, you know, but that's not, not how we're taught to look at wine. So there's a whole lot of things wrong with everything. Do you see that changing at all? Yeah. Yeah, of course it's changing. And you know why it's changing? After a while, people in general who are not stupid, you know, people are smart. Uh, They start to realize that what we're told and what we're reading probably 
isn't right. And so we kind of have to follow what we think. Mm-hmm. Such as yourself, you, you've come to your own conclusions. You didn't need to be told probably that, no, you don't rate all wines according to a classic Napa Valley Cabernet. I think you mm-hmm. came to the conclusion that it's probably not true. Right. <laughs> but the problem is with wine, a lot of people just, they believe what, they, what they're told. Mm-hmm. I think that's the American way. And so um, it's being human. It's not just an American way. But Americans didn't have centuries to develop a taste in wine like, say, the French or the Spanish or the Italians did. We basically have had only about 50 years. That's young, young industry. It, it, in exactly. And Prohibition didn't yeah. help. And what hasn't helped, of course, is media. Because the most influential people tend to look at things, you know, in... You can't call it traditional because the tradition is not that long. It's just more in the way in which it, things were set maybe in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s, it's understandable the way things were set because the industry didn't know about where to plant the best grapes and exactly what varieties would be best and or even how to make them. And so they've gone through all these trends and if good wine was made from even a grape like Pinot Noir and Cabernet, it was mostly accidental, you know, and, but it would be good wine. It's not to say it's mm-hmm. good wine, but, you know, everything was, is, is been hit and miss or throw something against the wall and see what works. And as it happened, a lot has worked. And so, we, you know, consequently, we do have a plethora of wonderful wines out there. It's just that, the rating systems and how people in general look at things are still kind of traditional. But I mentioned people. People ultimately are not stupid. So after a while, they'll catch up. And so they are catching up. So there is a lot of people that look for these smaller brands and more natural styles of wine that, that don't necessarily want the stuff they're put out on those store shelves and supermarkets and they know it's kind of schlocky and it's all commercial and, you know, with colorful labels to entice you to buy and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a growing number of those people. At the same time, there's a part of the industry that says, oh, natural wines, they're horrible. They're unpredictable or they're flawed. And, and so I don't understand why people even like natural wines. But you know what? People like natural wines. <laughs> and so whether... These industry people are saying it's wrong or not, they're buying them. And so they're, people are developing their own taste. To me, it's good. Mm-hmm. Even buying a flawed wine is good because you're learning. Like I used to, I started buying wines from Hermit Lynch in the uh, early 1980s when I was still a sommelier, full time sommelier. And it was the first time I tasted wines that could be funky or could have a different taste. It wasn't so much fruity. It couldn't be earthy or could smell like leather or, you know, it, it, they weren't maybe perfect wines. Yeah, some bread maybe. But they tasted, they were interesting and they weren't predictable. Mm-hmm. So they weren't falling into this thing where it's a Chardonnay, so it has to be taste like apples and, you know, and be a little round and fruity as a Cabernet. So it has to smell like herby and have, 
dark color and full bodied. And these wines weren't fitting into these pigeonholes. And so I found them to be very interesting. And those, in a sense, were natural wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you talk to Kermit, and I got to know Kermit very early on, you know, he would say about he's never been about natural wines. You know, what he likes, what he buys and imports are wines that taste like where they come from. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. And I believe Kermit because he'd been there. And But the proof is always in the pudding. You just go through his portfolio and, and, and just taste it. this from this part of France, this from this part of France. And each one is unique and different. So you taste a Mont Louis, for instance. Uh, uh, Mont Louis is made from Chenin Blanc, but it doesn't taste like Vouvray because it's Mont Louis. You know, it's it's leaner, it's tartar, it's more mineral, um, and that's because it's you know it's not made in Vouvray, and so you can't you don't judge Mont Louis by how it rates next to a Vouvray. That would be stupid. <laughs> you, know, you don't. Yeah. It's just like. You don't taste a Chablis and expect it to be full-bodied like Pouligny Monocher, and you don't taste a Mirceau and, and expect it to be as lush or, or light, as delicate as Chablis. You, you don't because it would be stupid because they're grown in different places. And so this would be the next step for all these people who are breaking away from looking at wines in terms of brands and varietal characteristics. They are bound to start appreciating and understanding why certain wines might be different than another wine based upon the fact that it's grown in a different region or it's coming from even a a different specific vineyard. And we know that's going to happen because it's already happened in Europe Mm -hmm. because they've had longer time to develop that. Yeah, the appellation systems, uh, uh, denomination systems, are all based upon the idea that you know regions don't make better wine than other regions, and these grapes are not better than the other grapes. They're different, and so they represent these uh, uh, names, the names of these particular places. So they've had longer to understand the basic concept that the best wines in the world taste like where they come from. Mm-hmm. In the 1990s, when I was getting into multi-unit restaurants, I used to attend tastings with sommeliers from around the country. It, it was funny in the 1990s because at that time, I really started liking Oregon Pinot Noir. You know, um, I didn't like them in the 60s and 70s because they were so light, they were almost like rosé. But by the time you got into the late 80s and early 90s, they were like really good. And but they're still very delicate compared to Russian River. But I, I remember bringing a really good Oregon Pinot Noir to a tasting with other sommeliers, and they would say, "Man, that stuff is it's a really light. It's like uh, you know because why their idea of a domestic Pinot Noir was something from Russian River, mm-hmm. which would tend to be a little more opulent, more richly oaked." a bit more body, less acid. And so the idea of a frail, light-colored, perfumey, as opposed to ripe and opulent style of Pinot Noir would basically mean, you know, it rates low according to your internal scale of what constitutes a good American Pinot Noir. So it took a long time 
maybe 20 years uh, before the Oregonians themselves were able to turn that around and, and get people to appreciate an Oregon Pinot Noir for being an Oregon Pinot Noir instead of how, how close does it taste to a Russian River style of Pinot. And uh, ironically, a lot of it was because some, a lot of Oregon or Oregonians were make, started making Pinot Noir to taste a little more like a California style. And so kind of bridges tastes and things like that, you know. But still, when people start buying from Willamette Valley, of course, they start getting accustomed to that taste. So to this day, you have that dichotomy in a place like Willamette where you do have a lot of guys making a big, richer style of California style Pinot Noir and and then you have other people kind of sticking to that lighter, tart, lean, sinewy style of Oregon Pinot Noir, which I think the grapes more naturally want to make, you know, despite recent years reflecting climate change and hot vintages and things mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, and that kind of changes things too. How did you make your way to Lodi after, after visiting on I started trips? I started coming by every, every year. Uh, um, and so they had, they started doing what they call a Lodi Zinfest every May in 2005. And so the Wine Great Commission people invited me to that every year and said, hey, can you even do wine classes at the Zinfest? And, and if I was in another part of the country, that would involve a, a plane ticket and a chance to stay at a really nice hotel. And I say, well, I would say yes. And so I started coming here a lot. And in getting to know the wines, because if you can speak about Lodi wines, you know, you, I think you better know about them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I started getting to know the, the region and the people in the uh, mid-2000s and up until the point where I was still working as a restaurant consultant up until 2008. Then I, I made a turn and went into journalism, you know, because the, uh, I don't know if you remember that stock market kind of crashed in 2008. Yep. <laughs> and so uh, there wasn't, I wasn't consulting, you know, I've always written about wine, might as well start writing about it for a living. And so eventually we had a conversation where I was ended up being invited to live here in 2010. So here I am. That's how you end up living in the middle of the vineyard? Well, yeah, it was uh, at the time, the executive director of Lodi Wine Grape Commission, which consists of 750 growers, about that number. If you grow grapes, you have to belong to it. You don't have a choice. And you put your money in. So they work in multi-million dollar budgets. The director was a, a fellow named Mark Chandler, who was, uh, had been a director since the Wine Grape Commission started in 1991. And he did that for 20 years, all the way to 2011. And so Mark was the one that, first introduced me to the region. I met him, you know, as a, he was a fellow wine judge at LA County Fair, which, you know, I judge, I used to live in Southern California, so I judged that for about five, six years. And so, uh, so Mark was the first one to invite me over here and learn about Lodi. And he was the one I started talking about, uh, you know, I told him that I'm now a full-time writer, you know, because he knew me as a restaurant guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they invited me back and forth because I, I was like the only restaurant guy who's even interested in, in Lodi. <laughs> and so uh, now there are more, but yeah, but you, but there used to be just one, <laughs> and that was me. Uh, um, and when we started talking about it, I said, well, Mark, I'm 
it would be kind of cool if I did move to Lodi, but it, I can't do it unless, you know, you can find me a cottage in the, the middle of a vineyard and, uh, you know, where I can live. Then maybe I'll move over. And about three months later, he called me up and said, I found that cottage. <laughs> and he described it to me over the phone and said, you know, said, do you need pictures or anything? No, no, I don't need it. Sounds good. So I was living in Colorado and, and just packed up and moved here in July 2010. Been here ever since. So it's, it's, it's been nice. Because uh, you, you want to be part of something. To me, what's the point? You know, I, I've been working with wine since I became a full-time sommelier in 1978. So what's the point, though, of moving to a place that's already established? You know, you just, you know, you first of all, you'd be expected to just go along with the crowd and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I've never been that kind of guy. I always want to figure things out for myself. And this is really the perfect place for it because, you know, not a lot of people know about it. Well, they do now, but still, you know, a lot of, not a lot of people respect it if, if they know about it. And so that's, you know, a nice challenge. And then there is the basic fact that this is a wonderful place. Mm -hmm. You know, over 100 grape varieties are grown here, and they produce wines like this, and it's, they're ridiculous. I mean, for God's sake, this from a vineyard 134 years old, and <laughs> it's like, duh, this is good stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy. In a way, it's it kind of connected to my career in restaurants. You know, I work in restaurants as a sommelier, first in French restaurants, and wore tuxedos every night. And, and the hard part in Hawaii, where I was doing it, was, you know, a lot of the classic wines wouldn't necessarily go with the food that we ate every day, which is more, uh, you know, Asian, Pacific-influenced foods. Mm -hmm. And so you... It's either Italian or American or what, or French or sometime a theme in a restaurant. And so the, there was, you know, you'd we would have a hard time. But that changed really, really quickly when uh, talented chefs started coming in. And there was one talented chef named Roy Yamaguchi who moved there to Honolulu in, in uh, 1988. And so I met him. I mean, he was you know, a big shot chef from LA. And he wanted to open up a restaurant there in Honolulu. So we opened up the first restaurant. And so the thing about Roy was he didn't cook strictly French. You know, he was French trained and made sauces. Everything had a sauce. If it didn't have a sauce, it was a vinaigrette, but he used ingredients from all over the world. So mm -hmm. there, there could be a dish that had a Thai spice, a Japanese vegetable, a Chinese herb, a Mexican seasoning and a French butter sauce, uh, all in one dish. And so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't the idea. He wasn't really trying to, you know, be fusion per se. It was to do good cooking. It's a more of a matter of balance. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you balance all these in sensations and and that go through the nose and on the palate? And and that's what he was good at. And that's what he trained all his people to do: cook with a, a sense of balance. in um, uh, that's more of an Asian sense of balance, which is more complete, you know, touching all parts of the palate. And so that opened things up in terms of wine. All of a sudden you need different wines, you know, the, um, that aren't necessarily, 
you know, uh, looked upon in terms of how full-bodied it is, you know, or or if it has certain aromas. You started looking for wines that have different bodies, lighter bodies, medium body, higher acids, and more mineral tastes, not, necess- not necessarily fruit tastes or briny tastes or, you know, all kinds of different sensations to match with this sort of cuisine. And so to do that, you have to look at wines that aren't necessarily from the familiar places like Bordeaux, Burgundy, or Napa Valley. You start looking in other regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, uh, well, if you're looking for Pinot Noir, you don't necessarily look for California Pinot. You look for well, maybe Willamette Valley or Santa Barbara Chardonnay as opposed to Sonoma Coast Chardonnay. And so this is how uh, the way of looking at wine changes based upon what you need for the cuisine. So all of a sudden your mind is open to wines from Southwest France or Southern France or, you know, or, or parts of Germany or in all different parts of Italy and Spain that are not familiar to most people. But if you're a successful restaurant like we were, we were an award-winning restaurant. We were on the cover of national magazines, Bon Appetit or Gourmet. Uh, it's ridiculous. We were very popular and well-known. So we can basically do what we want. So it didn't matter if a customer walked in and you described the dish and, you know, with uh, with 10 ingredients and most of which they've never heard of, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you recommended this wine that comes from this part of France that no one heard of. They're going to drink it because you're suggesting it. And Have so, the benefit of the doubt. So it, it's just a... A different approach. And, and so that's the whole beauty of that whole concept where you can have people enjoying your restaurant with an open mind. Because mm-hmm. we would have 25, 30 new dishes every night. Wow. And didn't matter because they knew it was going to be good because, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise they wouldn't be coming back over and over again. Yeah. So it's a whole different concept. And to this day, you know, some restaurants are able to do it, but most restaurants aren't. Most restaurants still has to sell the cheeseburger or spaghetti and meatballs or a chow fun because there's an expectation of getting that. But but many restaurants, though, have reached a point where they can cultivate their their guests based upon what you're going to prepare. The wine part is always the part that kind of dragged along. It's still dragging along, even in the restaurant industry where, say, the cuisine is, is at a high level and very creative. But the wine, you know, and you see a wine list, and it's still the same old names, same old. I mean, you can go to the, the best restaurants in the United States, and they all have the same wine list. They all have the same brands, the same wines coming from the same places because, you know, a lot of it is because the consumers are a little behind on it, but a lot of it is because the restaurant industry in general is behind on that. The wine part of the restaurants have always been behind the cuisine part. Still is. You know, chefs are taking off and going crazy, whereas the sommeliers are a lot of them, most of them are stuck in the mud uh, because they're afraid. You know, maybe it's not sommeliers, maybe it's the owners are saying, no, no, you have to have this. And besides, we want to get... Uh, uh, a grand award from this 
you know, Wine Spectator magazine. And then so to have that, you have to have the same, uh, these wines. And so that's how they all end up with the same wines. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a great Chinese restaurant, French restaurant, or American regional restaurant, you have the same wine list. It's really stupid. What was that experience like as, yeah. as the restaurant group kind of expanded, keeping the uh, well, we have, wine list kind of up to date? Or do you account for local tastes or? No, no, we, we, we would best? tend to feature the same thing. So we ended up, I myself opened up 28 of those restaurants, uh, uh, you know, from Hawaii to New York. And, um, and, you know, people are kind of the same everywhere. Now, Royce is not the same now. Eventually, it got corporate and started retreating back to predictability. And, and so, but when we were in that expansion mode in the 1990s, uh, we stuck to our guns. It didn't matter if you were in New York or Atlanta or Orlando or Chicago. We offered the same program. So, you know, you they would have a wine list, you know, that was matched with the cuisine, not a cookie cutter wine list that looked like every other restaurant's wine list. And our restaurant, our wine lists weren't big. We didn't believe in it. We believe in small wine lists. So, you know, you make more money out of it, basically. Mm. You know, I, I'm not gonna, not ashamed to say that I was also kind of greedy. So, was, you know, we're in it for the money. Uh, but we are also in it for the art of wine and food. So here's a true story. So we opened up a restaurant in San Francisco, a Roy's restaurant. Uh, on 4th Street, still there, in uh, 1998. And so the local restaurant reviewer, uh, uh, the Chronicle or something, yeah. he reviews mm-hmm. it and says, ah, yeah, food's kind of crazy. has all kinds of combinations of food. But the, the wine program is terrible. You know, they, they don't even have wines by the glass from these brands and these types of wines that, you know, we know we 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 prefer. You know, uh, I don't know what's up with that. They put everything under their own label, and and so so we we didn't get a great review. You know, yeah. and 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 he basically was saying the wine program sucks. But you know, what, of course, I did was I threw out the whole idea of house wine or wines by the glass long ago, way back in nineteen eighty nine. I threw the whole idea out. I mean, the whole idea of buying a wine only because they had a good price, but you would also be able to go down to Costco down the street and find it and serving it by the glass in your restaurant, you know, that to me is like, you might as well kill me. So I started having winemakers grow and produce, craft and bottle the wines for our cuisine. Okay. So if we had to sell Chardonnay, it wasn't going to be a big, fat, oaky, full-body Chardonnay like everyone was making. It's going to be crisp and minerally and sleek. It would actually go with Asian fusion French butter sauces. Mm-hmm. And so our Chardonnay was grown in Bien Nacido, you know, picked early to get higher acids and aged in neutral wood, a little bit of lee stirring to create texture, you know, by happened to be a really good winemaker from Jim Clendenin and uh, at Obon Clamat, but he would bottle it for us and it would say Roy Chardonnay, okay? So it's different. And so by the time we opened up in San Francisco, we had at least 12 different wines made from people like Clendenin, really top-notch people. 
in Oregon, up and down in California, Southwest France, great excuse to go there every year, <laughs> Germany, two, two wines from Germany, and Italy. We had a great winemaker making our $7 a glass wine from uh, native grapes in Umbria. And that was my idea of your cheap house wine. Mm-hmm. You know, crisp, minerally light whites and reds. Uh, totally unique. Made from grapes no one's ever heard of, of course. But that was my house wine. And that's what the San Francisco Revere hated. Wow. He hated, he didn't understand. I think he's, let's just call a spade a spade. He's, he's basically an idiot. He didn't understand or want to understand the whole concept of having wines that actually was designed to go at your cuisine. Mm-hmm. And, and so imagine that. To this day, most restaurants won't do that because they're afraid to. But that's what we were doing. And because I didn't care if I was impressing anyone. The important part is when you're sitting at the table and you have this dish in front of you, you have wine in your glass, how well does it go together? Mm-hmm. If it went really well together, they would have a great culinary experience. And then they would say, hopefully, wow, this is great. That's all I cared about. I don't care about, wow, This I heard of this brand and it got a 99 and there's a magazine it's like who gives an f about that who gives an f if they've never heard of the dish or the ingredients how does it taste do you enjoy in our case yes we were lucky that we were in a position at that time to be able to do that so it's a different way of looking at it and really my mindset has been that way forever I wasn't able to fulfill it in my early years, starting as a sommelier in the 70s and 80s. We had to, I had to wait around for the great chefs to come around, but they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now I live in Lodi for the exact same reason, which is who cares if you never heard of what we're doing here and what we grow here? Is it good? You know, is it fun? Is it exciting? Is it something you can afford? You know, it's, uh, I think it's, I mean, quality is there. Mm-hmm. How have you seen the perception of Lodi change since you moved here? Well, hopefully it has changed. And, and people say it has. And so we are, my job is to keep hammering away at that. It's just hammer away until it becomes something you know, that's acceptable. And so with my restaurant background, you know, having worked in a successful restaurant group that opened in many places, my mentality is always has been that um, to make something unusual or different or even exotic acceptable on an, a daily basis and understandable, comprehensible to anyone you have to put it out there every day. And then the exotic becomes something you you expect and know. Mm-hmm. It becomes maybe the ordinary. The extraordinary becomes the ordinary in people's minds. And that's the kind of work I'm doing now, is uh, getting people to understand, you know, that uh, and appreciate that 
carignan can be a really interesting grape. It, it doesn't say Pinot Noir or Cabernet or even Malbec or even Zinfandel. It's Sansone. Uh, uh, and um, it's lighter, but light can be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very earthy and spicy, but earthy and spicy can be very interesting and compelling even. And but the important part is it's unique. And so you want something a little bit different, but there you go. Here it is. So let's open up the Carignan. Because Carignan is interesting. Like I said, this is Carignan from Marshall, made by Greg LaFollette, who lives in uh, Sonoma, Forceville area now. He used to live in Sebastopol, but now he's in that little narrow Forceville area. But I think Greg is kind of like me, you know. He took one look at these vines. In fact, I, I was there the first time he looked at these vines, and and he went down on his knee and bowed his head. And he said, when you see a vine that's over 100 years old like this, you should get on your knees and bow because it's amazing that they live that long. Now, here's the thing about old vines. The reason why they live that long is not because of anything mystical. It's because they live in a healthy environment because if they didn't live in a healthy environment where they can be robust at 100 or 120 or 130 years old, they would have been pulled out long ago. Mm-hmm. So that really is the most simple thing I can tell you about old wines is that they're there because they can thrive. Now, your average age of a vine in Napa Valley, which is, 99% trellis is about 17 and a half, 18 years mm-hmm. because trellis vineyards have to be continuously replaced. You know, growing as an old vine when you're on just one stake and you have a trunk and then you have spurs emanating from the trunk um, is, a, is a more natural way for the grape to grow. Yeah, they become more like trees instead of a natural vine, but it's natural in the sense that the vine is able to maintain its health and integrity. And you have thick trunks, you have arms you know, that are not thin, they're muscular, and they have, you know, they have greater sap flow, and the roots are deeper because the vine is old. And so you just have more, you know, growth where a vine is able to bring up the nutrients that it needs to produce the leaves, the canopy, and the fruit. Uh, to be very productive. And so a lot of people have this old idea that, oh, old vines are great because the production is very, very low, and so wines are very concentrated. It's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, If production was so low where there's hardly any fruit from the vine, it gets pulled out because there's no purpose for it. You have to make money from a vine and from a vineyard full of these old vines. So no, the whole idea is not for them to be very meager and make these tiny little beady bunches and all that. Those are the wines that, you know, give up the ghosts. 
I mean, you know, if you own the vineyard, you know, you're spending $10 and you're making, you know, 50 cents, you know, that vine goes out. Yeah, it has to be economically sustainable also. It has to be economically sustainable. So this whole idea that old vines, you know, they're low production things. Yeah, it's lower than a trellis, young trellis vineyard in its prime. It's not a 10, 12 ton thing. But it's not a half ton thing either. It's more like three or four tons, which maybe might give you just the right amount where, you know, you, you see some profit from that. And then the whole idea that, oh, it must be very concentrated. No, that's not how you rate wines. For God's sake, sand salt doesn't make Cabernet Sauvignon. It's not, doesn't get black. Or intense and and pure old vine Zinfandel doesn't either. It's actually kind of a pale colored wine. And commercial Zinfandel, which is ninety five percent of them out there, usually have like twenty twenty five percent petit syrah, which gives them color and tannin, mm-hmm. Zif- which Zinfandel lacks. But you know, real Zinfandel is not petit syrah, and so real Zinfandel, you would no more blend petit syrah into a real Zinfandel than you would blend Petit Syrah into a Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. People won't do that for Pinot Noir because it would ruin a Pinot Noir. But, um, and they used to do that all the time. In the 60s and 70s, all Pinot Noirs had to have Petit Syrah in there just to get color and uh, aroma and flavor. So Carignan, when I got into the business in the 1970s, Carignan was the most widely planted red wine grape in California. So... Because it was, this was a jug wine variety. So Carignan is also a workhorse in southern France. You know, so when people think of southern France or they think Rhone varieties, and when they think of Rhone, they think Grenache, Syrah, Mouverdra. But the fourth grade really is Carignan. You know, it's very, very important, especially in southwest France. So they, Zinfandel, which is also a Mediterranean grape, acclimated to Mediterranean climates, you know, Napa Valley, Sonoma, Santa Barbara, Lodi, we all have Mediterranean climates. Um, so Carignan grew very easily, just like Zinfandel did. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that the pioneers in the 1800s preferred Zinfandel. You know, can't blame them. Zinfandel is a wonderful grape. Uh, um, and But by the 60s, you know, the, the jug wine producers really liked Carignan because you know, it was very productive. You know, it makes a big giant plant. Yeah, lots of grapes come off. Lots of grapes, and but lots of great acid. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, Carignan's, you know, has better acid balance as in general than even Zinfandel. And Zinfandel has better acid balance in California than Pinot Noir does. Yeah, I love the hibiscus kind of that you get from Carignan. So a lot of people think, okay, Carignan, oh, that was a jug wine variety those that can remember those days and that is true it's it's it was a, it's a jug wine variety but we're tasting one from this vineyard planted in 1900 on its own rootstocks and uh and so it has a really strong sense of place but it also it also tastes like carignan which is lots of red fruit it's a very perfumey you know cherry raspberry sort of thing and then it has that smidgen of earth Mm-hmm. Uh, um, to it, yeah. uh, and and when you taste it, it's nice and zesty on the palate. It's naturally zesty. Is it 
zesty like Barbera? No. Barbera has the highest acid of all the red wine varieties that are grown probably around the world. But it's a lot zestier than what you would find even in a Pinot Noir mm -hmm. or uh, even most Zinfandels. So, so that's the, the big plus of Carignan. And it's unique. So we, we like to taste this wine all the time, blind against some of the old vine Carignans you can find in southwest France. And uh, it compares really well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is it the same? Of course not. The French wines taste like where they come from in France. And this tastes like this vineyard because we have old vine Carignans from other vineyards that are a little bit different. And they should be that way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um so Carignan is a quintessential Mediterranean grape, and uh, which is why it grows so well here. Because uh, we're, if anything, a Mediterranean region. So everyone knows Zinfandel. This Lodi is the Zinfandel capital of California, and that's because Lodi Zinfandel is a Mediterranean grape. When I started in the business in the 60s and 70s, we they still didn't know where it came from. So it was like the mystery grape, but then they figured out it came from Croatia and then went to Southern Italy. But the whole idea is it grows well in that kind of climate. Cold winter, not snowy, but cold and uh, hot summer. Mm -hmm. Why is it, is it important to be a Mediterranean grape? Uh, it's because these grapes are already adapted to a climate, though, even though it's hot in the summer, it, it retains its acidity and balance and freshness. Mm -hmm. So Grenache, Syrah, Mourvedre are also right in those things. That's why they grow so well in South Australia, you know, nice warm climate. That's why they grow well in South Africa, nice warm Mediterranean climate. And... Uh, so the funny thing about the industry is, yeah, you're right. The, the Cabernet, the Merlots, or Chardonnay, they're they're more, you know, continental type climates. They're they're not from the Mediterranean regions per se, but you can grow them in Mediterranean mm -hmm. climates. It's just that when you take the Grenache and you try to grow it in the Loire Valley or in the Rheingau. Or even in Bordeaux, it's it's, it's not going to make it. it. It's it's it's, and so so you can take grapes like Cabernet and Chardonnay and plant it in southern France, you know, where it's warmer and more moderate climate, and it it will make good wine. But you can't do the reverse. So, <laughs> can you yeah. tell me a little bit about the Lodi Native project? Speaking of mm. sort of zins that. Come off the vine, pretty balanced. Well, the Lodi Native Project, you know, it was a couple of years after I moved here in 2012. I, I decided that, okay, yeah, we can't just write about the ideal wines, you know, coming out of Lodi. We, we have to be proactive and start making them. And we can't just talk about them. We have to have some examples. And so... Uh, yeah, I came up with the idea with the group. You know, I gathered some of the best uh, Zinfandel specialists here, and, and I proposed this project where they would adopt an old vine vineyard, a historic heritage vineyard. And here, old vine is something planted in the 60s or before. 
you know, so at least 50 years old. Because after that, things changed. You know, people started using more rootstocks. And uh, they also went more towards wires and trellises. But but even if they were growing head-trained vines, they were putting them on different rootstocks. And mm-hmm. so, and then, most so of the, them on their own. Yeah. So the ones, the ones mid-60s and earlier are... 90, 98% on their own roots, okay. you know, and, and only Lodi can do it because we have these incredibly deep, 50 to 100 feet deep sandy soils. I mean, Lodi is just totally weird, you know. I mean, sandy loam, you can find that in Russian River. I mean, you know, uh, and all the great Pinot Noirs come from a sandy loam there, but it's only uh, two or three feet deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ours is like 80 or 100, so different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so that explains why it's a, it's not just sandy loam so it's very rich soil so it's like layers and layers of all this composted sand you know, laid down by rivers so it's it's really rich alluvium and so you have a healthy vine very deep rooting uh, and no rocks what I mean by sandy loam no rocks not even a piece of gravel it's, you won't find anything like that so I told them that then we want to make the wines to taste as much as the vineyard as possible. And to do that, we have to follow the traditional ways of doing that, which is you have to ferment with native yeast. You can't add anything. You can't acidify it. You can't add water. You know, when you pick it, you know, too high in sugar, you know, and you want to, uh, and there's no acid or you can't, you know, you can't use new oak barrels because we don't want any barrel flavor. It has to be 100% neutral. Three, four, five-year-old barrels. and But, you know, we still want the oxidation uh, from barrels. So, yeah, you age it in a barrel. But just not, you don't want the oak flavor. And uh, you can't filter it. You can't find it. You can't do anything, basically. And uh, add a little sulfur, of course, because we don't want flawed wines. You know, we want it to be stable, and and that's all you can do. And so, I remember one winemaker saying, "Oh, you want us to, you know, make shitty wine, and you know, because that's not how you make good Zinfandel." I said, "No, I don't want you to make great Zinfandel. I don't want you to make shitty Zinfandel. I want you to make Zinfandel that tastes like the vineyard where it came from." So that that's what that project is, and so. They all agreed. We invited people like Greg LaFollette to come over and talk a little bit because Greg, you know, for most of his career has been doing native yeast fermented wines. And and he helped a lot by reassuring some of the local guys that, you know, that's native yeast or wild yeast is, is not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of them just needed to hear that. People like Mike McKay were already doing it. And so it wasn't that big a deal. And then we had one very extremely, one of our talent winemakers, and he'd done it both. He'd done native yeast, and he'd done uh, uh, mostly inoculated fermentations. But So it was not a big jump for him, but there were others that had never done a wild yeast fermentation ever. They wouldn't dream of it because, you know, why would you? You know, it's, uh, it's not safe. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but they all agreed, and so what came out was these packages of wines, six or nine, whatever it was, and each one 
each bottle reflected the vineyard where they came from. And so that way, we were able to demonstrate the whole idea of Tawar, typicity relating to where it's grown. Because each vineyard is different. Here in Lodi, we have what we call east and west side. So west sides tend to grow in a little richer alluvium, and so they do have that earthy qualities. But if you go on an east side, where some of those vineyards are almost like a beach, there's so much sand, and they're still very, very deep, you get smaller clusters, smaller berries, but you get no earthiness. It's all perfume. It's, all, it's a redder fruit, more like cherries and strawberries. On the west side, where it's earthy, it, you can get cherries and strawberry, but you'd also get some blackberry and plum. And so there are differences. And so there are differences on the different sides because there's slightly different alluvium, but there's also differences in between individual vineyards on each side. So when you get to a stampede, which is the far east side, which is still grown in a sandy loam, that soil is so low in vigor that the, the berries and the, and the clusters tend to be very small. And, and so you, get, you always get higher acid there. It could be a negative because then you're waiting for the acids to drop and all of a sudden your sugars are up at 28, 30. And so you have a big, hunking big wine, you know, 16% alcohol. But the better producers from there have learned that don't wait, you know, just go ahead and make the wine and just let it all hang out. If it's higher in acid, if it, you know, if it rips your tongue as it goes through, well, that's the vineyard, you know, but you don't want 16% alcohol. You want maybe 12 or 13 or maybe 14 at the most. But the idea is when you make the wine like that, all of a sudden you have a wine that tastes like Stampede. And which is totally different from anywhere else in Lodi. Stampede is not the only vineyard out there that makes some wine like that, by the way. It just happens to be the best known because people like Craig Harmeyer are making wine from there, or Maitre Deschai, a couple of other people. And uh, Little Trouble Wine Company now makes one. Mm-hmm. So that was what Lodi Native is. So to this day, there's only a couple of guys that still put wine out under the Lodi native label because it, it was a um, you know it was always meant to be a, a short-term project so we basically the original Lodi native winemakers only did it for four or five vintages and then but people like uh, Saint Amant uh, they still do it because they, they like offering a Lodi native and then they do their regular one from the same vineyard and that might see about you know, nowadays it's about 15% new oak. And so, yeah, a little smidgen of new oak, because that could be nice too. So why even do that? You know, we did it because mostly for media. And so so a lot of people tasted it. And always, anytime anyone went through the line, they almost everyone said the same thing. doesn't even taste like Zinfandel. <laughs> you know, it's because we weren't making commercials in. Yeah. Right, because commercials in is has petite syrah. You pick at high sugar, so it's very ripe and jammy, and then you add water to get it below sixteen percent alcohol, and, and and that's how you make zinfandel. To a lot of people, it didn't taste like zin because over ninety five percent of zin is made in California is made in the commercial stuff. So people had to get used to that. And then number two, of course, was wow, each one is so different. You know, which is why, well, that was kind of the point. We're trying to show that Lodi 2 has what you call tawar. 
sense of place. Uh, it exists, even though it didn't historically exist because these grapes used to all go into those giant vats and making jungle jug wine. Thanks for listening today to part one of my interview with Randy. He's had a long and storied career in many different aspects of the wine business and so interesting to see what changes and what stays the same over the years. You can follow the podcast and subscribe on wherever you're listening and also follow the Instagram at Indie Wine Podcast for updates or email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com with questions, comments, or feedback. I hope you join us next week for part two, where we discuss more about Lodi, including Spanish and white grapes, how his book Lodi, The Definitive Guide and History of America's Largest Wine Grain Region came to be, and much more. Thanks again. Have a good one.